0: I'm glad you guys are here this morning. For those of you who don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're joining us online, man, we're glad you're joining us. I'm glad you took a little bit of time out today uh, to join us online before, before you watch some football this afternoon. So I'm glad you uh, have your priorities. Unfortunately, I know it's a sad day for all of us. We're all very sad that the Dallas Cowboys are not <laughs> playing today don't worry, don't worry, there'll be a time for prayer, and we can kind of, we can hug it out, we can spend some time together, um, we're all going to get through this, um, not, you know, they're not going to be good for very, forever again, because Anyways, um, hey, I'm glad you guys are here. So uh, uh, we're working through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, Matthew 23 is where we're going to be. And um, w- we're going to just have to get right into it. If you've got a Bible with you, wherever you're joining us, you can open that up. If you don't, don't worry. Um, I-, I brought the whiteboard today. And-, and the whiteboard means one thing today. It means we're going to have to do some work. Um, he- here's the thing is that when we're reading Scripture, we have two options. Most of the time, we, we-, we have two options. And um, the easier option that we do so often is we read Scripture, we see what Jesus is saying to those people, and then we ask ourselves, like, do I have that problem or not? And most of the time, we can say, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm not having a problem with, with um, whether we have to deal with circumcision or not. I'm not having a problem whether we have to eat unclean meat or clean meat. We, we don't have those problems. I don't have to worry about the temple. And, and, and our temptation today, we're going to get through a huge chunk of Matthew 23. We're going to start in verse 13, and we're going to finish Matthew 23, which is a ton for us, is we're getting into what's called the seven woes. Okay? Your Bible might say the eight woes. We don't have time to go through the history of why it says eight, and it doesn't say seven because we've got a lot to get through. But we're going to go through the seven woes. And the temptation is to see Jesus' critique of the religious leaders of their day and go, <laughs> well, I don't have that problem. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. right?" Or the invitation, what we're going to do today, and, and, and I, I want to invite you to, is to lean in a little bit. To, 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 to be honest with ourselves and, and to really do some hard work of digging into what Jesus is saying, to maybe see, here's the great mystery, here's the incredible thing, uh, here's the amazing thing about this book, right? I love the words of this book. There's something about these words that 2,000 years ago cut to the, to the heart of the issue as Jesus spoke them to religious leaders, and I think that if you'll go with me, and it's, it's going to require... I know it's the weekend. I know it's Sunday. Maybe, you know, in the room, maybe you already had breakfast this morning. Maybe you had a big old stack of French toast, and that French toast is kind of sitting there, and it feels like nappy-nap time for you. But if we lean in, and we do a little bit of hard work, I I, I believe you're going to get this awesome payoff at the end. We're going to see, again, that this book is living and active that, that the words here will cut into our very soul even today as Jesus speaks to people 2,000 years ago in some mysterious and powerful way. He'll speak to us, okay? So you ready to do some work with me? So here we go. You don't have a choice. I have the microphone. Matthew 23, verse 13 is where we're going to be. Matthew 23. It says this. We're going to get right into it, but it says this. Whoa, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Okay, here we go. Um, woe number one. Now, now here's the thing. When, you, when you're seeing these woes, something that I want you to think about is... Um, we don't know Jesus' tone. We weren't there. There's a lot of speculation. But I, I'm pretty confident to say that when Jesus was saying things, his predominant emotion wasn't anger. It wasn't anger. It wasn't, you horrible, wicked people, I'm going to smite you. Right? It wasn't anger. Because right after this, you know what he does right after this? He goes up on top of a hill, and he looks over Jerusalem, and this is what he says. He says, oh, Jerusalem have longed to gather you as a hen does her chicks, but you refuse. Like, that's, that's affectionate language. That's mourning language. That's loving language. And, and yes, Jesus is going to say some hard words, and he's going to say some critical words, um, but he's, he's lamenting a failure of their, of their religion, of their practices, of their leadership. And and so he begins with this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And the first lament he has is that they block people from the kingdom of God. Now, um, each gospel has a certain kind of main thrust that they want to give you for you to understand. And Matthew's primary thrust, what he's most concerned with you seeing Jesus as is seeing Jesus as the successor to King David, the fulfillment, the greater King David, the, the king that they have been waiting for, the, the, the king who would ascend again to his throne, right? So it, it begins, you remember, it begins Matthew 1 um, with the genealogy. And there's all these imagery throughout. We just had the um, in, in chronological time, just a couple days before, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. They're celebrating him as the king, right? All this king language. And so what Jesus is saying is that you're preventing him into the kingdom. We've said this too. There is no kingdom without a king. What Jesus is lamenting in the religious leaders is that they are blocking people from the Christ, from the Messiah, that they are preventing people from coming to him. Okay, so here we go. We got seven of them to get through. Okay. Um, so number one, actually that says A, that's not one. Okay. Um, number one, his lament um, is that they're missing the Christ. Okay? They're leading people in missing. The, X is the first letter of Christ. And I put there, I put Christ on purpose because um, uh, that's what Jesus is saying. Now, he doesn't say you're, you're missing me. Right? He, other times he refers to himself, he is the Christ, he is the Christ, he is the Christ. But he's saying, you're blocking them from coming to the king, who is himself. Right? So they're missing the Christ. You ready? Here we go. Next one. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now, this actually begins with kind of like um, a positive acknowledgement, like Jesus says that there's a fervor in the religious leaders to see people come into the kingdom of God so much to become part of the nation of Israel that they'll travel over land and sea. And it's important to notice, okay, it shouldn't be missed on you, that he says that they travel over sea and land. I don't, I don't You know this, um, the Jewish people, not much for seafaring, right? They were not the Vikings of the Mediterranean. Although they lived on the Mediterranean, the, 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 the ocean was a terrifying tormentor that could not be controlled. And he's acknowledging that they have such fervor to, to spread their message that they'll go anywhere and they'll risk their lives to go anywhere for people to hear about the law of God and, and, and the sacrifices and cleanliness and uncleanliness, all of this that it means to be a part of the nation of Israel. It's actually an interesting, um, just a little tidbit to think about. Um, a lot of times we read the book of Acts, and um, we read about Paul's missionary journeys, right? If you read about Paul's missionary journeys, travels all over the Mediterranean, um, planting churches, and he almost, he always, if there's, if there's a Jewish population, he begins in the synagogue, and, and he begins there, and then he works his way out. Um, we think when we read that a lot of times, we think that like Paul just imagined that strategy, right? That he was just like, I got to go tell people, and I got to go now, and he just got on a boat and went. But um, historically, he probably was just doing the same thing that Jewish missionaries did. He was just following a model of what Jewish mission. They'd go wherever, and Paul does the same thing. And so he, they say, Jesus says, but when you make him a convert, when you make him a proselyte, you make him twice a son of hell. What's Jesus is talking about, we're going to see more of it in a little bit, but, what he's, what, but, but to give you a little heads up, what he's telling them is that they're proselytizing them into an empty or dead religion. Because you see, Scripture tells us, Paul, Paul tells us, the Scriptures itself tell us that, they're, that, that the law itself is just death. That the law in the Old Testament, just that law, just brings about death. God gave us the law to remind us, to show us, to teach our souls of our complete inability to save ourselves. And so he's saying, You're making these converts, but you're just inviting them to death, to an empty religiosity. To an empty religiosity. Okay, so here we go. Be empty. Religion, no life, just death, okay? Death. Okay, number three, you ready? Here we go. We got a lot to get through. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold in the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But who swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by both the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. This is one of those great examples where we could, um, we could be tempted to go, well, well, good thing I don't have to worry about that. I've never, I've never made an oath by the temple or by the gold or the brass or the silver or anything of the temple. I've never made a sacrifice, uh, an oath by the altar or anything on the altar. In fact, I've never offered anything on an altar and it's easy for us. But, but here, here's, here's what Jesus is critiquing, okay? Um, Jesus is critiquing and practice amongst the religious leaders to find ways to manipulate scripture, to um, oppress abuse or exploit people that they, they, they would try and find, well, you know, it, it didn't say we had to do it just this way. And, and if you, if you swear by this thing, in fact, there's, um, there's one historical account, at least one historical account where, um, there was, uh, a, a, kind of a, a lawsuit. We'll call it a lawsuit. There's an argument between two Jewish men and they'd made an agreement, right? And, um, the, the guy made an agreement and he didn't follow up on his agreement. And when they made the agreement, he said, and he acknowledged that he swore by the offering on the altar that he would accomplish whatever he had agreed to accomplish, right? And he didn't. And here was his defense. He said, "Um, I swore by the offering on the altar. Where's the offering? Got burned up right? He goes, well, since it got burned up, then uh, it's no longer there, so I don't have to, and, and this is what Jesus is talking about, a misuse, a, a twisting. He, here's, here's the uncomfortable truth, okay? Like, let's just be, the, the, here's the uncomfortable truth. With a little bit of work, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Do you know that? Just a little bit of work, a little bit of effort. You can grab this verse. You can take this verse out of context. You can say this thing's referring to this thing. And there's this image. And nobody else knows about this image, but there's this thing over here. You can make the Bible say about anything you want. And the religious leaders were experts in using the Bible for their power and for their position for oppression and for abuse. And they taught others how to misuse Scripture. So, so here, here's his, his, his next one. Let's see? miss use of scripture. Okay. We're we're almost halfway home. You guys with me? We're still there? Okay. Here we go. Verse 23. This is where it starts to get good. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Jesus's critique of them is this, is they've majored in the minors. He doesn't say that that, that, um, that tithing is bad. In fact, it's, it's taught in the law that they should do. And, and tithing of their mint and their dill, like, Jesus isn't against that. But at the very end, he says that you, you, you filter out a gnat and you swallow a camel. He, he, both of those things are unclean, right? And what he's saying is you're so concerned with just the tiniest minutiae, and yet you miss the elephant in the room. Or Jesus might call it the camel, Right? You miss this huge, weighty, you're so concerned with every single little detail and yet you miss, this is Jesus' critique of them. you miss the whole point. You become so consumed with the rules and the law and just right, you've missed the whole point. Here's Here's what he laments, critiques them, is that they've missed the... Point. Okay, here we go. Number five. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You, you blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may be clean Also. They were masters in understanding and articulating the rules around cleanliness laws and uncleanliness laws. And they found ways to twist and utilize scripture where all was ever concerned with was the outside. That's what Jesus is saying. All you're concerned with, the the deepest that you let the truth of Scripture weigh on you is only to the things that have to do with your appearance and the way you appear in front of other people. The outside looks awesome, looks beautiful, looks ornate, looks expensive, but you never allow the Scriptures to do the hard work of weighing on your soul. You found a way to use Scripture where it never has to apply to you. It never has to confront you. Jesus confronts in the religious leaders the misuse misuse of Scripture. There we go. Verse 27. Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, now Jesus is actually probably referring to a practice that um, they would have done in Jesus's day um, leading up to the Passover. See, there's this problem um, with uncleanliness. If you touch anything dead or anything that has touched anything dead, you become unclean. Now, despite how we view it a lot of times, uncleanliness um, isn't like forever. Uncleanliness is actually... uh, not that big of a deal. Like to become unclean, there there were all kinds of regular practices that you would go through life and you would become unclean. Um, If a woman gave birth to a child, she became unclean. It didn't make her toxic. It didn't make her wicked. It just made her unclean, right? And so then you'd have to go through ceremonial processes to become clean again. It wasn't that big a deal. The problem that they ran into was that leading up to the Passover, tens of thousands of people would descend upon Jerusalem. Right, Tens of thousands of people descend upon Jerusalem. And then what would happen if in the weeks leading up, when there's all these tens of thousands of people flooding the temple and people buying sacrifices and making sacrifices and them just having all of their normal rituals, what happens in that moment if you become unclean? The temple doesn't have time to deal with you. It's got the Passover to prepare. And in fact, they couldn't even bring you in because they had to make sure that nothing became, unde- nothing became defiled because of you. So what they would do, well, one of the practices that developed was the religious leaders would go out several weeks before Passover and they'd go all around Jerusalem and they would clean and, and, and make very visible any tombs or graves. Because you see, people lived in Jerusalem for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years there were a lot of dead people buried in Jerusalem, right? And, and, and so there, if you left them, you could have like a bush kind of grow over a, a rock pile and, and then you're walking, right? Or, or a bush, uh, vines begin to grow over a stone that's sitting by the road. And you've been walking in the Middle Eastern sun for days to get to Jerusalem. And you come approaching Jerusalem and you can see the hill out there. And, and you've been walking for days and Jerusalem's up on a hill. You got one last hill to hike. Right? And you go, before I hike that hill, I'm going to take a rest. Right? And you see a stone and you go to sit on the stone to take a rest. And then someone points out a little chisel in the side of the stone. And you notice that that stone is a marker for someone's tomb, for someone's grave. Now you've become unclean. And so what the religious leaders would do is they would go all around Jerusalem, and they'd clean them all off, and they'd polish them. And, and, and their goal was to make them shine as radiant as the sun because they wanted everyone to see, even to the point where they, they were almost, like, beautiful, right? And Jesus says that that's you, that you've spent so much energy... Cleaning the outside of who you are to make yourself look beautiful, but in the inside of who you are, there's just dead bones, lifelessness inside of you. Empty religion, death. Okay, last one. Are, are we still here? Are we still with us? Yeah, still good? You sticking along? Okay, here we go. Trust me, you guys stay with us. It's, it's all gonna come together. It's gonna be awesome. Here we go, you ready? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and, and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we'd been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have partnered with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Um, there's this thing called historic arrogance. Historic arrogance. You ever watch a documentary, uh, maybe even something that happened in the 20th century, and you watch a documentary, and, he, and here's what you feel. Here's what I feel. Okay, maybe I'm just a horrible, wicked person, but I watch something that's going on. I watch something that happens, and here's what I think. If I'd been there, if I'd been there, I would have stood with the right people. Right? Anybody else? Right? If I'd been there, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't have been those people. If I'd been there in that day, I would have been part of the right group right? It's called historical arrogance. We look back, and we look back at other people, and we judge them, and the religious leaders were doing the exact same things. They looked back on the, their forefathers, on the prophets, and they went, well, <laughs> I mean, if we'd been there, I mean, if, if God could have just sent a prophet to us, you know, we would have listened. We, we would have submitted ourselves. You know, if, if someone could, you know, just like maybe go out into the wilderness." You know, and, and live a distinctly different life. And maybe if he just ate bugs, you know, and, and he spoke with the power of God. And maybe if he stood out there and he called Israel to repentance. <laughs> have you heard this story? His name's John the Baptist. If, he, if, if we'd been around then, we would have listened. We would have listened all the while standing right in front of them is the one the prophet spoke of. Is the Christ, is the Messiah, is Jesus himself standing right in front of him? And just chronologically from the time we're sitting, just within days, you know what they're going to chant? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. At one point, man standing over the trial of Jesus and he says, this man's blood is not on my hands and he washes his hands. And you know what the people say? They say, let his blood be on our heads and on our children's and our children's children. Standing right in front of them is the one the prophet spoke of and they miss him. I don't know if you've seen this before. Um, This is called a chiastic pattern. It's a literary tool. It's really actually pretty incredible. It's hard to catch on if you're listening to someone do it in the very moment, but it's a a really powerful um, teaching tool that was used very prevalent in Jesus's day. And and what you do in a chiastic um, pattern is number one, and the last one in this case, number seven, basically say the same thing, right? You see that? Jesus's critique of them, was that they were, they were preventing people from coming to the Christ, coming to Jesus. And then at the end, he's going to say, you missed the Christ. That, that the second one and then the second to last one basically say the same thing, that they become sons of hell devoted to an empty religion, that, that they are like tombs full of dead bodies devoted to an empty religion. And then the third one, and progressively until, here's the whole point of a chiastic structure, is you are actually pointing people to the center See, a lot of times when we're writing, we either like build an argument and then at the very end, we have, our, we have our point, we have our punch. Or if you're writing like a thesis, you begin with your thesis and then you build out your arguments behind. A, a, a chiastic structure is built like this because everything builds towards it and then everything points back to it. So Jesus is trying to tell us something. The thrust of his lament, the center of his great warning The center of the thing that causes him to his heart to break for the leaders, the religious leaders, for the people of Israel is this, that they miss the point. The great temptation of our faith is that we miss the point. We get so caught up in all these other things and we think that in our diligence of following the rules and following their situation, following the laws, even to the very minutia of the rules, we think we get so distracted and we think that that maybe, maybe if we can follow the rules and, and we can be more moral people and we can help other people be more moral people, that we'll somehow honor God. And Jesus would say to us as he did to them, You missed the point. So what's the point? There's something else that's awesome about this. Okay. We did our work to set this up. There's something else that's really awesome about this structure that that's hard to see at first, but when you notice it, um, it's really awesome. You see these, these ones over here, um, these are all Jesus is confronting the religious leaders on their practices and its impact on their relationship with God. And on this side, he actually gives them tangible tools to fix it. You remember, he's talking about the cup and uncleanliness. And what's he tell them? He says, clean the inside of the cup, right? He's confronting them and their religion and their spirituality and their walk with God, right? And so these ones are all about how they've missed the point with God. These ones are all about how they've missed the point and it's impacted others, they travel all over the world to make a proselyte, but once they do, they make him twice the son of hell. They teach people how to abuse and to misuse scripture, and they miss the point. These ones here are all about how their walk is impacting others. Now, you might remember, Jesus has been teaching all day. It's towards the end of the day. This is Jesus' last great moment of teaching, right? Right? And you remember how the day started? Um, Jesus' popularity and, and, and energy and, and kind of a populist movement had begun to kind of gather around him. The cross was imminent. Jesus knew this. And so the religious leaders and political leaders want to discredit Jesus. So they come and they start asking him questions. And you might remember some of the questions. One of them is this. They ask him, what's the greatest commandment? Remember what he says? He says this. Love the Lord your God with everything that you are, right? Different gospels record different sets of words out, but the point is, love God with everything, right? And then he says this, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, a lot of times, we had this conversation back in December, if you weren't here, if you haven't heard this before, you, you may have missed this, but a little refresher. A lot of times, we think of when he says it, we think of it in English like bullet points, and we think that Jesus is saying in second place, Right? Like, like, uh, like they asked him a question and Jesus like, well, the right answer is God. Love God with everything you are. But for bonus points, love other people too. But that's not at all what he's saying. In fact, he says that it is of the same nature. When he says like it, he's saying it is of the same. What Jesus is saying is that the greatest commandment, there's this thing in the way that we interact in the way that we express ourselves that bears two different fruits but they're born from the same place, that we love God and we love people. John picks up on this. He writes in his epistle and he, he says, how can you claim to love God whom you haven't seen if you can't love men whom you have, right? They're born out of the same thing. Look, look, Jesus is telling them in the same conversation. They've been standing here having this conversation. They just asked him, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with everything that you are. And to love others. And Jesus' confrontation, his lament to these people is all the ways that, <clears throat> that they failed to love God and to love other people. And in the end, in the end, they missed the point. So one last time, what is the point? Look again at Matthew 23, verse 23. Let's read that one Woe again, because if Jesus is pointing everything to it and everything descends away from it, we should put some energy and effort in seeing what Jesus is saying here. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You, 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 thought, you thought that this whole thing was about you following the rules and convincing other people to follow the rules. It's about justice and mercy and faithfulness. You see, the gospel message is just that. It's a message of justice and and God's mercy, and his unending faithfulness. That the story of this book is a story of justice, and mercy, and his faithfulness. He, here's, and, and not justice, like we think of justice as like penal, right? The biblical view of justice is restorative. It, it's making things right. In the end, God will be just in all ways, and he'll make all things new. He'll make all things right. The gospel message is this is that every single one, that justice says that every single one of us is broken and wicked, for the wages of sin is death. We have all earned this death. We've all earned this brokenness that justice demands, that that we pay the penalty, and yet in God's overwhelming mercy and loving kindness, he's given himself in place so that his perfect justice might restore all that is broken, that in giving his son, he might restore and redeem the wickedness and the brokenness of our soul, and that in all things he will be faithful. Scripture, there's this one passage, I love it, it says, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. This is the good news of the gospel, that God is not impressed with your, with your faithfulness, with your accomplishments, neither is he disappointed or surprised with your failures but he is a god of justice redeeming and restoring all things he is a god of mercy and grace and he is a god who is faithful always in all things now we could just stop there but jesus is actually quoting a passage you want to see this you ready one last thing justice mercy faithfulness you ever heard micah 6:8 Let me read it to you. Let me read it to you. You ready? Here we go. This is Old Testament. This is one of those guys that they talk about. You know, I mean, if someone like him had come, right? Someone like him had come to us. And so Jesus just quotes one of them. He has shown you what is good. And what the Lord requires of you, okay, okay? So, so God is great and merciful and kind, and the good news of the gospel is, is that he is redeeming all things, that there is mercy and grace for every single one of us, and in all things He will be faithful. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. But it's not just that. And what the Lord requires of you here it is to act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly, to be faithful, to walk humbly with your God. So what is required of us? What is the point? What is is all this put together? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. God's not concerned with you being a more moral person. God's not concerned with you being a kinder person. God's not concerned with our culture being a more moral culture. God's concerned with the kind of justice that brings redemption, a kind of mercy that heals, and a kind of faithfulness that redeems. God God is concerned with us loving God and loving people. And then you know what he says? You remember? He says this. He says, when you clean the inside of the cup, the outside will get clean. There's a question today. How is it that we're called today to act justly And biblically, what we're talking about is a kind of restorative justice, advocating for the oppressed and the overlooked, for the widow and the orphan, for the rejected and the unwanted. What does it look like in our lives to be a kind of people who stand up for the voiceless, who fight for the oppressed and the abused and the rejected and the unwanted, to be a people who bring restorative justice to all things in this world, to be people of mercy. See, people have been shown mercy, show mercy. People have been shown grace, show grace and to be faithful, to walk humbly with our God. I I just wonder, I was just thinking about this week as I was going over this. What would it look like? How would it change our world? Let's just forget, how would it change our community if what we as followers of Christ were known by was humbly walking with our God? How would that transform and redeem the brokenness of this world. So often we get sideways. We think this thing is about so many other things. But it's an invitation to you to respond to the justice and mercy and faithfulness of God with justice and mercy and faithfulness. I pray that we might be that.